We welcome you again to Prairie View Christian Church and, of course, happy Father's Day. Now, two weeks ago, we began reading Paul's fiery letter to the churches in Galatia. Paul's message is so urgent and his words are so intense because false teachers are leading the Galatian Christians astray. They're allowing themselves to be dragged into an altogether different gospel, a counterfeit gospel insufficient for their salvation. So instead of just sitting back and watching as the Galatians spiral downward into destruction, Paul writes this letter to warn them. And Paul warns them because he loves them. So last week, Zach picked up in chapter 2, going a little bit deeper into what exactly the false teachers were claiming and why their message was so wrong. These false teachers, who are often referred to as Judaizers, saw nothing wrong with a person believing in Jesus. However, while it may be good, faith in Jesus wasn't enough for justification. To be confident that you were truly in good standing with God, you needed more than just faith in Christ. You also needed to perform those works of the law of Moses, particularly the work of circumcision. Now, for a believer in Jesus who was already Jewish, that might not have sounded like too big of a deal. After all, you already grew up dedicated to works of the law anyway. But for a non-Jewish believer in Jesus, a Gentile, submitting to the law of Moses and submitting to circumcision would have been a massive burden. But to be honest, these false teachers may have made some pretty good arguments. They could turn to Genesis 17, the Old Testament passage where circumcision is most clear-cut, pun intended. They could point to their nation's well-established history of practicing circumcision. They could even argue that Jesus himself was circumcised. The Judaizers' arguments may have been so convincing that even Peter, the Apostle Peter, was once sucked in. And was almost led astray himself. But as we pick up today in chapter 3, Paul continues to insist that these false teachers are bad news. Paul brings up some big theological ideas in these verses that we'll read today. He talks about our faith versus our flesh. He speaks extensively about the Holy Spirit. He goes back to Abraham more than once. The very first person circumcised in obedience to God. But more than anything, Paul's talking today about access to the family of God. Access to the family of God. How does one enter God's family? Who can be included in God's family? And then once you get into God's family, how do you stay in God's family? And then maybe most controversially, what's the purpose of the law of Moses? If we're justified by faith. These things mattered to the Christians back then. And they matter to Christians now. Hearing and understanding Paul's teachings on these things. Will shape our understanding of who God is as our father. It'll shape our understanding of how exactly we've been saved. How exactly we've become his children. And it will also shape our understanding of scripture. And what it means to us today. So open up to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. 
Feel free to use the Bibles that we have here if you didn't bring one and take one of those home with you if you don't own one or if you forgot to get your dad something for Father's Day. So, let's pray and then we'll get into our text this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Uh, What a joyful morning this is when you think about it. Uh, Starting off the morning with a baptism. Uh, That's a wonderful way to begin a Sunday. And so, Father, I pray that you would be with us the rest of this Sunday, uh, that that joy would continue throughout the rest of our service, throughout the rest of our day, uh, and in the week ahead as well. I pray that we would be attentive to your word. Thank you for the gift of your word. I pray that we would not take it for granted. Help us to understand it better. Help us to submit to it more consistently and apply it in our everyday lives for your glory and for the good of those around us. Father, again, we pray for this church. I pray for these people, each one of us coming in here with different fears or concerns or joys or failures, things to celebrate, things to mourn. Father, I pray that you'd be with each of us as we worship. We love you. We praise you. We give you all the glory, and we thank you for your son who died on the cross for us. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we've mentioned on Sunday mornings in the past, there's a lot of baggage when it comes to talk about the family of God. When we hear world leaders, activists, and celebrities advocate for peace and love in a world full of hatred, we might hear things like, you know, in the big scheme of things, we're all God's children, right? Well, as Christians, we want more love and a lot less hatred in our world. That's for sure. And we agree that all people are God's children to an extent. We're all God's children in the sense that we're all created by him. We're all created in his image. We all have an undeniable dignity and worth as a result of that. But scripturally speaking, there is a certain access to God that only believers in Christ have. Only believers in Christ can claim to be sons and daughters of God in the fullest sense, with all the privileges, joys, and blessings in both this life and the next. And Paul talks about that a bit this morning. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So in his opening words, Paul brings up the Holy Spirit. Now, why do you think he does that? Because for Paul, the Holy Spirit is the number one identifier of a Christian. The Holy Spirit is the number one identifier of an adopted son or daughter of God. He says in Romans chapter 8 verse 9, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. We see the same teaching in the book of Acts. When Christians are looking for proof that these Gentiles who supposedly have believed are actually saved, both Peter and Paul point to the gift of the Holy Spirit. In chapters 10 and 11, Peter argues that the Holy Spirit fell on Gentiles when they believed in Jesus, the same way the Holy Spirit fell on Jews when they believed in Jesus. Paul makes the same argument in chapter 15. He says, look at these people. The proof is in the pudding. These people really are saved because they have the Holy Spirit. They are members in full standing in the family of God, even if they're Gentiles. So the number one identifier of a Christian is the Holy Spirit. But how does a person receive the Holy Spirit and thus receive access into the family of God? By faith in Jesus. That's what Christians have been preaching all the way back to Peter's very first sermon. Christians didn't urge their hearers to be circumcised or to submit to the law of Moses. They urged them to believe in Christ. Every single sermon. In Romans 2, Paul differentiates between outward circumcision in the flesh that used to identify God's people and inward circumcision of the heart by the Spirit that now identifies God's people. This new covenant was ushered in by Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul even says that the Scripture preached it beforehand to Abraham. Paul points out in Romans 4 that Abraham was accepted by God before he was circumcised. He cites Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Again, that's before the circumcision of Genesis 17. The point is that Abraham was welcomed into a relationship with God by faith, not by circumcision, not by any other work of the law. And the same is true of believers in Jesus. Paul goes even further in verses 10 through 14 showing that the law was never sufficient to improve our standing with God. And that's the whole reason that Christ came. That's the whole reason that Christ died. So if you think that you can use the law to earn your way into God's family, or that you can use the law to move up the ranks in God's family, Paul says that you are foolish. He says that you are cursed. 
Because no one can fulfill the law perfectly, except, of course, for one person. And because our sinless Christ fulfilled the law completely, he was able to take the curse of our sin upon himself. That's the reason that Jesus came. So that lawbreakers, Jew and Gentile alike, could be freed from the curse of sin that affects us all could be freed from the weight of the law that none of us could carry. The way Paul puts it in Acts chapter 13 is this. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, referring to Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Christ has come and Christ has done what the law couldn't do. So again, we receive the Holy Spirit. We become part of God's family by faith in Christ. And Jew and Gentile alike are invited to place their faith in Christ. Jew and Gentile alike can receive the Holy Spirit. And Jew and Gentile alike are welcome to become sons and daughters of God. As Paul says in Romans 10... Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone. As God told Abraham in Genesis 12, all nations would be blessed by his family. So this idea that God would welcome people into relationship with him by faith and not by works of the law, it's not a new idea. It's been anticipated since the time of Abraham and inaugurated by Christ himself. So anyone who believes in Christ, receives the Holy Spirit, becomes part of God's family. But then the Judaizers might bring up another question, and it's a good one. How does one stay in God's family? The false teachers may have argued that while faith in Christ may get you in to start with, obedience to the law is what keeps you in. But Paul argues that this simply isn't true. The same spirit you receive at the beginning of your new life in Christ walks with you as you continue in your new life in Christ. We don't get saved by our own strength. And we don't stay saved by our own strength. And Paul says, if you believe that, you are foolish. You've been bewitched. You're even cursed. As he said in verse 3, having begun by the spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? No, you're not. So while this may sound like a lot of theology, please don't forget that this is very good news. This is the good news that we've staked our eternal destiny upon. We believe with Peter and with Paul and with all the Christians who came before us that faith in Christ grants us access into the family of God. We don't have to prove our worth to God. We don't have to become Jewish. We don't have to perfectly fulfill the law to approach God. We are given the Holy Spirit, welcomed into his family, and kept in his family by faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for our sins, the one who took our curse. But of course, if this is all true... That does bring up another question. And it's a question that the false teachers may have been the most 
concerned about. If all this stuff is true, if it's all about faith, then why was the law given to begin with? If this is all true, then what's our relationship with the law now? Was the law just a mistake on God's part? Is the law something that God thought at one time might save sinners, but then, whoops, proved to be insufficient? Is the law just a relic of the past that Christians can sweep into the dustbin of history? Something we can unhitch from and tear out of our Bibles and blissfully ignore? Well, Paul thinks not, and he tells us why in the next few verses. Galatians 3, starting in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. Thank you, Paul, because we're a little bit confused. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So Paul argues that the law was never meant to annul void or replace the promise that God gave to Abraham in the book of Genesis. We don't worship an incompetent God who poorly planned a promise, saw that it wouldn't work to save sinners, then tried giving a law, saw that it wouldn't work to save sinners either, and then resorted to plan C and sent Jesus. And what do you know, this time around, everything worked out. That's not the God that we worship. God knows everything. He sees everything, past, present, and future. And he knew exactly what he was doing all along. Paul helps us better understand the purpose of the law from the beginning. It was never meant to save us. It was never meant to justify us. But that doesn't mean that it didn't have purpose. God gave the law to make humanity aware of our sinfulness. And consequently, our need for his forgiveness and grace. God gave the law to teach us about himself, his character, and his holiness. God gave the law to restrain sinful mankind in a good way. The way a guardian or a babysitter restrains a mischievous child 
and keeps them from getting into too much trouble. I mean, look at it this way. Laws and rules aren't set because people are good. Laws and rules are set because people are bad. That don't slide on the railing sign on the mall escalator, that was put there because people have a long and storied history of sliding on railings and getting hurt. The rule is set and the sign is hung to hopefully keep people from hurting themselves and hurting others. The sign is hung. The rule is set to restrain them for their own good. God gave the law to point sinners to Christ. That we might be realistic about our own wickedness. And thus even more amazed by Christ's righteousness. God gave the law to help us know without a doubt how badly we need a savior. So if that's why the law was given in the past... The question still remains, well, what's the purpose of it today? Well, the law has pretty much all the same purposes for Christians now that it had back in Paul's day. It can still teach us a great deal about ourselves and a great deal about God. The law can teach us about sin and can teach us about holiness. It can point us to Christ. The point is that the Old Testament law hasn't changed, even though our relationship to it has. We don't keep the law for fear of being cast out of God's presence when we slip up. We don't keep the law to try and nudge our way further up in God's penthouse. And we don't keep the law so that we can stay out of God's doghouse. We don't look at the law as a terrible burden. We look at it as a grace-filled gift. We read the law with joy, knowing that the God who gave it the one so holy, so perfect, and so righteous would love sinners like us. We read the law and praise Christ, the only man who fulfilled it. We don't dispense with the law as some relic of an unfortunate bygone era. We embrace the law as the gift it was always intended to be. It's not our guardian anymore. We're set free from that. And the law won't save any of us. It's never saved anyone. But it can help all of us. So we're welcomed into God's family by faith in Christ. Marked by the Spirit in Jesus. And kept in God's family by faith in Jesus. That's the good news for all of us. Jew and Gentile alike. Now of course in Galatia in 50 BC. That meant that Gentile Christians didn't have to get circumcised. And that's great, I suppose. But what does it mean in 2018 A.D. for American Christians? Because let's be honest, we don't worry much about circumcision these days. If you do, you shouldn't. But the principles that Paul puts in place, the things that he's teaching, are still incredibly relevant to us. If you're a believer in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. You've been marked as God's son or daughter in the fullest sense of the term, and you can approach him with confidence. You're part of God's family, and you don't have to live in constant fear of being cast out of the family or being disowned. You can look to God's law for wisdom and teaching, not condemnation. All this stuff was true in Galatia in 50 A.D., and it's still true in Fishers in 2018 A.D. 
So don't listen to someone who suggests that your faith in Christ is great and all, but it's not enough to be a son or daughter of God. Don't listen to someone who suggests that your faith in Jesus' death and resurrection is a good start for your salvation, but you need to throw in a few good works of your own just to be safe. Don't listen to someone who suggests that you might just barely be a part of the family of God, but you're just not quite as in as they are. And don't listen to someone who suggests that the Old Testament law is a way to make sure God keeps loving you. It's not. And don't listen to someone who says that the law is a thing of the past that you can do away with entirely. Both people are wrong. None of that stuff would be good news if it were true. In fact, it's a counterfeit gospel. So cling to the true gospel that Paul preached, the one preserved for us. And if you're not a believer in Jesus, here's the bad news according to Paul. You're not a child of God in the fullest sense of the term. You have nothing to look forward to in eternity. Paul would even say that you are cursed. But then here's the good news. You can be one of God's children. You can have an eternal inheritance. You can be blessed. No matter your baggage, no matter your sins, no matter the skeletons in your closet, no matter what family you came from, you are invited into God's family by faith in Jesus Christ. Not by circumcision, not by works of the law, not by half-hearted attempts at morality, not by showing up at church a certain number of times per year. You are invited by faith in Christ. That is the gospel that Paul preached. That is the gospel that we still believe today. It was good news then, and it's good news now. That Christ took our curse, that we might be blessed. Let's close by looking at the final verses of chapter 3, starting in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek... There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. There's really no better way to end than that. Knowing that we Christians are all on the same playing field as sons and daughters of God. We all have an inheritance to look forward to in eternity. We are all one in Christ Jesus, no matter how different we may be. And there are no second-class citizens in the family of God. And as we keep reading next week, we're going to learn even more about the joys, the privileges, and the grace that God has given us as his children. And it's all through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for these reminders of the truth of your gospel. If we've been in church for long, these are things we may have heard before. Hopefully, they're things we've heard before. But I also pray that we would never tire of hearing about them. And I pray for those in this room who have never heard this before, who might not be believers in Christ. I pray that they would... Place their faith in your son this morning. 
Father, it is amazing to think that lawbreakers like us, sinners like us, can approach you with confidence, can call you our Father. We are just in awe of that, and we're humbled by that. And I pray that would be the case every single day. That when we wake up and we pray to you, when we go to bed and we pray to you, when we open your word, that we would just be taken aback by your grace, taken aback by your mercy and your kindness to sinners like us, that we could even dare come into your presence with any level of confidence. And that is all thanks to your son who died for us and rose from the grave. We love you. We give you all the glory. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.